Good afternoon, everyone. It's Sharon Hall, and I'm here today with Nancy, Nancy Gregor Holt. And uh, Nancy, I met Nancy at the FTD conference that was put on by Dementia Alliance North Carolina and Right State of Mind. Nancy is a nurse practitioner and has been helping families since 2012 when she entered sort of into the dementia world. She's with the Neurology Clinic at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and she helps families there. She's a nurse practitioner there. And I just thought that her advice was very straightforward. She talked about things that sometimes we don't hear a lot about. And, and so I invited Nancy to the podcast. And welcome, Nancy. Okay, Nancy, um, let's start with the uh, stages of FTD. Uh, okay. I thought that that was really interesting because what happens is everybody wants to know what stage are we at, what stage are we at, and then we hear a lot that there's, oh, there's mild, moderate, and severe, but then nobody really expounds on that, and I found that very interesting when you talked about the stages. So. Let's start with stage one and tell us a little bit about what we would see, what we, we would normally see in sort of a stage one. Okay, thank you. Um, so I, I um, actually, even though I've been doing this for a long time, I've always been using the FAST staging test, Functional Assessment Staging Test, F-A-S-T, which is the staging um, system that has been developed for Alzheimer's disease. And Whenever I would try to explain to people where I thought their loved ones were, um, it didn't. It doesn't really go in the right order when you look at it for Alzheimer's disease compared to FTD. Um, but it's a kind of a good way to start because I can explain to you about what the FAST does and then how it's different with stages of FTD. So in in staging, um, there's there are in the FAST staging, it's numbered one through seven. There's some letters there. And when people are on hospice, and there's sort of a, um, it's a language that everybody would know. So they use fast staging for different things. So if I was to say somebody's in stage three, somebody in another state would understand what stage three meant. We don't have that same exact system for FTD. So I'm going to briefly talk about this fast staging. So in, in stage one, in the fast functional assessment staging test, that's normal aging. So there's no deficits in, and they call it characteristics, but I call it function. And the person's mental age is an adult. And when we do one of the screening tests, the mini mental state exam, which is one of the most common screening tests we do for dementia, um, they would score in the normal range. 30 out of 30 is normal. They would score between 29 and 30. And then as people develop possible mild cognitive impairment, the person themselves will often realize there's something not right. So we'll have a subjective functional awareness. But other people might not notice it. And that's stage two. And then in stage three, in mild cognitive impairment, other people start noticing that there's something not right, something not right about the way that they're functioning or speaking or managing or organizing. It's not enough to not be able to kind of continue to manage whatever you're doing in your work world or your family world, but people are starting to notice. And then in the next stage, it starts affecting your ability to um, manage your instrumental activities of daily living. And in the fast staging, each of these stages um, have an have average duration. 
So if you go online and look for the fast dating, you'll see this for a duration. But again, I must say that this has to do with Alzheimer's disease and not FTD. But um, I preface it, and, and I always say this is average, because we know you meet one person with dementia, you meet one person with FTD, you've met one person, and they're all different. Um, and so with the stages of FTD, the first stage would be cognitive impairment. Um, so it's similar to the fast stage. And people start noticing, and this is objective, people, other people start noticing unusual behaviors, some mood changes, some personality changes. Um, depending on the type of FTD they have, whether they have behavioral variants or um, primary progressive aphasia. So if they have behavioral variants, which would mean that their, their FTD, their atrophy in their brain would be more in the frontal area, that would be the behavioral variant. And if they had more of a language deficit, it would be more in the temporal area of the brain where they would have some shrinkage, brain shrinkage. So when they list these stages, they really don't, they really, the way this this chart that I found lists them, it's really um, mostly seeing changes in the behavior initially. So that in stage one, you're mostly seeing some changes. But I would think in people with the primary progressive aphasia type of dementia, people would start noticing some language problems initially. And then in stage two, which is the mild um, stage of FTD, then that's mentioned that there's more problems with um, language, spatial awareness, people getting confused, there's some short-term memory problems. When we do cognitive testing, people with FTD will often score better than expected because their memory seems to be one of the, is not the first symptom. It's more their behaviors because the FTD, the frontal temporal area of the brain, the frontal area, which is the behaviors and the personality um, centers. So short-term memory-wise, and that's what the cognitive screen tests are, um, they might score fine. So you might go into your primary provider and say something's not right, or you might, you know, say for my loved one, something's not right, we've been noticing some changes, we'll do a cognitive screen, and the person will score fine. But that's because that kind of test is not a really good test for FTD. It's a good test for Alzheimer's dementia because that starts initially with more short-term memory and people will have confusion and memory problems. So that's why lots of times it's, it's such a delay in people getting diagnosed because when they go and they have a regular cognitive screening test, um, it might, they might score normal. Let so then, um, go ahead. Can I, can I stop you there for just one second? Sure. Because sure. that sometimes, you know, that we get this delay in diagnosis and, is there a way for us to go into a primary care provider? Should we start keeping a very detailed list of things that are changing? And if they say, let's do a men, an MMSE, a mini mental, say, well, I really think that it's not Alzheimer's. Is it? Mm -hmm. How does that go when when going to a primary doctor physician? Well, I think I think listing the symptoms that you're seeing is really crucial. And whenever I have a patient come to clinic, um, they, it's really not useful for them to come unless they have a loved one, somebody that knows them. Because they're any, any type of person with any type of dementia, they are not very good historians. They're, they might, a person with FTD might have a memory and be able to give, give history about, you know, who won the 
NCAA championship last year, but they're not very good historians when it comes to seeing their own deficits because not only, especially in FTD, not only um, people don't have so much of a memory problem, but they also lack insight and judgment, and that's part of the decline. So I, I do like doing the testing, but I would also preface that when you go into your primary provider and say, I'm, you know, I know you're probably going to do this standard testing, whether it's the Montreal Cognitive Assessment or the Mini Mental State Exam or the St. Louis um, Memory Exam called the Slums. But I don't, I don't think it's, it's not really short-term memory. Um, it's more executive function and it's more behavioral function that I'm seeing. So people oftentimes with FTD, you know, like I said, they can still continue and work until you know enough people start saying something or seeing something and noticing. Lots of times in work, people have um, somebody that kind of is covering for them at work and um, you know picking up their slack. Um, so that that time, that's why oftentimes um, it's so delayed. And in any dementia, it's often we say that on average, people don't get it diagnosed with a dementia until they've had the symptoms for approximately two years. Um, that's because, like you said, we were talking earlier about people kind of might see their loved one, make some errors in things, whether it's memory, whether it's executive function, whether it's personality changes, but we all want to give our loved one the pass and say, oh, it's just, you know, they were just really overwhelmed at this time or they're stressed or they're busy. And it's not until probably a couple of years when families start thinking, geez, you know, just remember that mama two years ago at Christmas time did this. So it probably was happening then and we just didn't realize it. Yeah. Um, so it really funny. Yeah, it really is. So would you say that most of us, we see it sometimes that that cognitive impairment that, seeing the behavior and the mood changes and maybe the personal hygiene and agitation, but we, that's when we sort of pass it off to something else. So actually we're really not coming into the whole diagnosis usually until stage two. Would you say that's pretty accurate? It's probably accurate. Probably in the first stage, a lot of people are seeking psychiatry um, assessments because of the behavior and the mood changes. Um, And Lots of times that's what providers see. They think it's like maybe a midlife crisis, especially since the age of the person with FTD or the beginning of the FTD is around the age where you would think somebody would have a midlife crisis. Maybe midlife crisis is (laughs) people with more severe midlife crisis. Maybe they have FTD. I don't know. Um, you, You know, it could be that they do have some changes in their frontal area. They don't have a diagnosis of FTD, but they might have some, some changes in their frontal lobe that's making their personality change or making them seek something else for more enjoyment in their lives that they don't, they're not getting. When they start having, um, oftentimes we'll see people that just become really fixated in certain types of foods, doing things a certain way. Um, we see that a lot in the early stages. I think repetition of meals or doing things in the same way makes it easier because then you don't have to depend on um, recall as much. Although, and even though it it is not um, specifically a dementia where the cognitive, the thinking part is the primary symptom, there are still problems with recall and management. 
the executive functions, um, thinking of an executive as a person who um, executive function means like a person who is in charge of things. And so your executive function in your body is telling your body how to do different tasks. And we um, are not able to do them, such as organizing and planning, problem solving, abstract thinking, um, regulation of emotion. We self-regulate our emotions all the time. Um, if you see, I'm spending time with my three-year-old grandchild, and she does not self-regulate her emotions very well at all. Um, her frontal lobe is probably not very well developed, and she'll laugh and cry within the same minute. Um, so we see that a lot. Moral reasoning is a part of the regulation of executive function and decision-making. So we see those as common um, early symptoms of FTD. And as the disease progresses into the stage three or the moderate stage, we see more problems with um, what we would think we would commonly see in other people with dementia, which are um, might be wandering, getting lost, more cognitive issues, um, problems with sleep, track of time, track of schedule, and speech problems. And often there'll be a lot of visual impairment issues. And then as um, it progresses into the severe stage, the activities of daily living, such as toileting, bathing, hygiene. So in the initial stage, they might not pay attention to their hygiene. They might neglect, but they're usually not having any problem with incontinence. It's just that it's not as important as it used to be. But in the severe stages, it becomes more problem with um, personal care. They do need a caregiver to help with the personal care. And this is a stage that's often very difficult for families. And now with when, the caregiving. Yeah, when you're talking about severe, I think, I think a lot of times a lot of us sort of get hung up in that moderate stage, and we don't really think of severe until someone is bedridden and nonverbal and in and very much looking like we would all think about uh, someone in later stages of Alzheimer's. So I, mm -hmm. I think that maybe if maybe that severe really starts a little sooner than we we sort of think it does. I think it depends on how you look at it. Um, in the fast staging that we have for Alzheimer's, they they have that area where you start needing help with personal care, like choosing clothes, clothing, help with bathing. A lot of times people don't want to shower as much. They want to wear the same clothes all the time. They'll have their favorites. They'll, they'll not be noticing spots or stains on their clothes. Um, that area where all that personal care issues start, they classify that as moderate slash severe. And they don't count severe until somebody is not able to have very many words past the stage of where they're needing help with, um, with their urine and their bowel movement. So with FTD, that severe area, they've had severe difficulty with their personal care. Um, and the severe area, I, I really think it's sort of an objective measure, um, the severe area where somebody has trouble swallowing. Not everybody with any type of dementia will end up being bedridden. Um, they might die before that happens. People have other health problems. And as disease progresses, people, um, their other health problems might be the cause of their dying as opposed to dying from their dementia. 
So so. people might never get to that part where they're in the bed and have sores, especially if people have been very clear about their advanced care planning. It's it's really sometimes difficult. Um, People will say, I don't think we're ready for hospice, but yet severe can mean a different thing in FCD than it than it would as you would just think of hospice, you know, and and a lot of times we have trouble with people that are put in hospice and then taken out of hospice and put in hospice and taken out of hospice. And um, how, how do you think about, about that? What, at which one of these stages do we really say, could we please have an evaluation? Well, it's, it's a little confusing. The way I, I also used to work for hospice. I just, I worked for hospice for seven years. I did the recertification for hospice. So when somebody is in hospice, um, their provider has to state that they think they have a six month or less lifespan. So because of functional decline, that's not a determinative lifespan. The more clear determinative lifespan are other health problems such as infections or weight loss. Um, with the dementia diagnosis, and they don't have an FTD diagnosis at hospice, it just, it's just a general dementia diagnosis. They talk about the fast stage 7A, which is the point where people are not really um, having very many words, but they're still walking, but they're dependent for all their personal needs. But you do not necessarily have to be at that fast stage 7A, that severe in your functional part of your dementia to qualify for hospice. What qualifies people for hospice is other physical things that are happening, such as falls and um, the complications that might happen with falls, fractures or subdural hematoma or recurrent infections or weight loss. Hospice is a federal program. It's run by Medicare. Um, Although if you don't have Medicare, other insurances also pay for it. There are certain guidelines to be on hospice. But what I find over the years is that different hospices interpret the guidelines in different ways. So what one person might be accepted to one hospice, where if they apply to another hospice, they might not be accepted. And one person might stay on hospice for a very long time, whereas at another hospice, they might say that they don't meet criteria anymore. And it's not very clear cut. Actually, the guideline that I follow, the hospice guideline, and I can send that to um, Sharon and she could post that. So I have a guideline like a hospice card that has different diagnoses. Those guidelines were the guideline that I follow is from 2008. And there's some things in there that don't qualify people for hospice. Like they used to, we used to qualify people for hospice if they had failure to thrive, which would mean that they're just not eating well and they're just not functioning well. But we don't have that one as more, anymore. But a significant amount of weight loss is a is a criteria for hospice eligibility. At the FTT conference in Raleigh, there were several people on the panel, caregiver panel, talking about their loved ones and how they were in hospice. And I did kind of wonder what what made them qualify for hospice. So it is very variable. So it, it's it's worth you know talking to a palliative care or a hospice person if you feel like your person, your loved one, has declined a lot and um, you're wondering where they are stage-wise, they will be able to help you with determining stage and determining where they are regarding um, disease progression. So that you, anybody can make a hospice referral. It could be done by a, a, the family. You don't, um, they need to get an, an order from a f- provider, a nurse practitioner, physician, or PA, but a family member themselves can make their own referral and have an assessment. 
It's and um, being in palliative care, I, you know, I, I do some things with palliative care, and uh, to me, it's always beneficial to have palliative care from the beginning because obviously you have a terminal diagnosis, so have it from the beginning. And it seems to me that when you have palliative from the beginning, the transference to hospice becomes much smoother. Uh, would, mm-hmm. you, would you agree with that? It could be. And, you know, again, just like I said, that there's different hospices and different hospice companies provide different things. The same with palliative care. And in our area, unfortunately, um, and we Palliative care is not a very strong um, system, so I, I don't see it being very helpful. But for other people in many other places, I've seen it be very helpful. One of the things that I think is really important, um, palliative care, palli- palliation means management of symptoms. And so either somebody in palliative care or your provider or if you have a neurologist or a specialist that you go to, they help manage may help the love, your loved one manage their symptoms, the symptoms, the behavior, the agitation, the sleep problems. Those are all symptoms of the disease. They're not just um, things that make life difficult and shouldn't be managed, but they cause distress and they're symptoms and they should be managed. Because I, most people's goals are to have a most comfortable life, as enjoy their life and quality of life as they can have. And so managing those symptoms um, is important. And sometimes if you cannot get your symptoms under control, that's what palliative care is for. Palliative care initiate, was originally um, focused, and so was hospice, for cancer diagnoses. And it was much right. easier to um, prognosticate and also know the symptoms. And, and there's much more data about how to manage the symptoms when it comes to cancer. But, but it's not as easy. Most of the things that we do in dementia care are what we call off-label in management of symptoms. Right. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about about the safety because there again, uh, a lot of times we think sometimes we think someone can be home alone for a few hours, but maybe they are not so safe at home for a few hours. How do mm-hmm. we how do we determine that? How do we determine? When can I not leave somebody alone? When what what are things that they sh- shouldn't be doing, including driving? Uh, how do you how do you get to that safety concern and how you evaluate that in knowing when mm-hmm. you need help? Mm-hmm. Um, well, home safety and driving. Well, let's let's start with driving because that would happen before they would be unsafe to be home alone. I would think um, uh, driving is a very difficult um, issue when it comes to anybody with dementia um, or um, including people with FTD. There are some screening tests that we can do that I do, a screening test called TRAILS A and B, um, which is sort of like to connect the dots. Um, And what it tests is multitasking, and when we drive, we multitask. So the questions I ask family members and patients are, you know, have you gotten lost? If you did, what did you do? Um, have you had any accidents? Have you had any tickets? Um, and I am always concerned with the liability of somebody that is diagnosed with any type of dementia um, and that they're still driving because there is 
there are risks with that. Um, perhaps your insurance wouldn't cover um, an accident if your provider had recommended you stop driving and you continued. So we do a screening. We do a screening test, and then there's other ways that people can be assessed for their driving safety. You can get a referral to an occupational therapist that specializes in driving assessment, and they usually do an off-the-road driving assessment. It's two to three hours. They use a simulator. They use some of the same cognitive tests that I was mentioning, the trails A and B. Um, they ask them rules of the road. They look at reaction time. And if they feel that the person is safe driving, they'll say, I think you're safe. If you do well, if they're concerned that they're not, they usually recommend an on-the-road driving test. None of these, none of the occupational therapists are not bound to report to DMV, um, Department of Motor Vehicles. But they usually, they would send the report to your provider, and then the provider needs to make a decision on what to do with that information. If I, if I get information from an occupational therapist that a patient is unsafe to drive, um, if they're concerned that they're unsafe to drive, and the, usually families will try to encourage loved ones to stop driving, but there are case situations, and not uncommon in FTD, because people are impulsive, they don't see that they have any impairments, they have what we call anisogosia, which they don't, they're not aware of their impairments. They just don't see it. It's not an intentional thing at all. They just don't see it. Um, sometimes DMV does have to get involved because um, that's a very difficult thing, but you also want to make sure that there's transportation um, to make up for not being able to move about in the world. For home safety, um, if there's wandering, if there's unsafe behaviors, sometimes there's some um, online issues that make it unsafe for the person to be home alone, um, whether they're giving away money online or being part of a scam online. Sometimes people have to have some way to stop the online use. Um, that's part of home safety. Um, some, not so much in FTD do people have trouble initially would be like with cooking, but that's another way. I'll often ask people if they know what to do in case of a fire. If people don't know what to do in case of a fire, if they can't tell me to call 911 or to get out, then I don't think they're safe to be home alone. But um, um, Sharon will be sending out an, uh, a little handout I have. I think most people can kind of get a gut of when they think their loved one is safe or not. Um, and then nonverbal people with nonverbal with verbal problems have are you at higher risk because then they they couldn't call for help or they couldn't give somebody their phone number or their loved one's phone numbers. Um, road ID R O A D ID is a good it's a rate it's a wrist um, ID bracelet that I recommend people getting so in case people are not able to give phone numbers with their loved ones and they get lost. Yeah, I, yeah, we have road ID and and it's. And it's one of the less expensive ones as well. So, you know, it's not as expensive as yeah. you know, something. Yeah. It's uh, a safe other, return the from the Alzheimer's Association. Yeah. Maybe it would be a um, a good idea if we sort of said to our, our, our person, you know, like, you know, if there was a fire when I wasn't here, what, what would you do? Uh, and mm -hmm. maybe just their verbalizing it will give us an idea if it's safe or not, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So we yeah. can, we can yeah. do self as well, right? Sometimes we don't do that much. You know, we don't. We sort of yeah. rely on what we see instead of relying on asking. <laughs> Sometimes we can right. say, right. you know, 
I was reading somewhere about some lady who couldn't call 911. Do you think you could? Uh, you know, just in yeah. a conversational way. And that sort of gives us an idea as well, do you think? Right, right. I often will have patients, they'll have cell phones within a clinic, and I'll ask them, I said, oh, go, ahead, go ahead and call your husband. And because um, lots of times they're able to answer. So if they're left home alone, they're able to answer. So if their husband was to call them to check on them, they could pick up and answer. But oftentimes they can't call out. Sometimes they can't answer, and their loved ones don't realize that. Um, and financial safety is really crucial, and that seems to happen even earlier with um, use of credit cards, buying things, spending sprees. I'll often recommend if you really, your loved one, you really want to have your loved one be able to have some access to money, get a credit card that has a you know low limit, $500 limit, so that they can't go out and buy a motorcycle, which I've had people do, um, or something like that, to spend a whole lot of money on random things. Yeah, that, that does but, happen a lot. Sometimes even wait for diagnosis. You know, sometimes sometimes people don't even know that they've gone through a lot of money, yet they're the person who takes care of the finances. Right. You know, right. it's a little bit, well, that's why so many people, you know, end up with their 401Ks gone before they even realize anything is wrong. So, right. you know, a lot of these are kind of tricky, but... Um, but I think just asking is kind of a, a good, you know, just you know, the role play kind of scenario where you can kind of make it just a conversation, even about somebody else, mm-hmm. and kind of yeah. eke out, would you be able to do that? Because the thing yeah. I worry about, like, this Rod is his anxiety. So I wouldn't worry as much as, as he wouldn't know what to do or who to call, but that he would get so upset by it that he wouldn't think to do it. You know, it's it mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. It's like an anxiety issue than an actual physically doing it issue. So I think right. anxiety right. was something that he couldn't process. So I think sometimes we have to keep that in mind, too, that not he, they might be able to call 911. You might say, hey, could you call 911? And they could do it, but get them flustered and then make them call 911 and see if that works. Because right. it, it right. may be that a situation of a, of something happening, they wouldn't be able to do the same things they could if you just say, hey, could you call 911 and they could do it. It's mm-hmm. different if they're fired or something's happening that they're not right. in control right. of. The so, so uh, right. yeah, I think that's, right. that's something you kind of have to think about, is, about too. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. And so the options of what do you do when somebody um, is not safe at home, whether or not you have a caregiver, people go to um, a day program, go to the senior center, um, you work, family members take turns. Sometimes people have Meals on Wheels. That's a friendly visitor that comes in every day just to sort of double check and make sure somebody's doing okay. But it's that's a little sporadic in their um, being around. I think when people get more advanced just one visitor in the middle of the day is not going to work. But the financial safety, I feel like, is really paramount. And lots, lots of times couples don't share their finances and don't have a trust for some reason to let their other their loved ones even, like, monitor the check-in account. Um, that's, that's really unfortunate. And I tell people, you know, I know you've worked really, I don't know if they have, but I just assume that they work really hard for their money. So I say, I know you've really worked really hard for your money, and I don't want you to, to lose it by accident. 
And so that's one of the ways that I kind of strategize to help people let their loved ones, let their family members kind of share in that financial responsibility. Yeah, and sometimes sometimes that's hard, but I think a lot of times it's the way we approach it as well. Mm-hmm. So like you said, mm-hmm. all you want for your money in, instead of saying, you can't handle finances anymore, you have to give me all your past. Well, if somebody says, you can do either. So I think a lot right. of times it's the way we present it and sometimes help get you over that time. Uh, so right. uh, we're, right. we're down on time here, uh, Nancy, but I um, – I do, I do want I do want everyone to know that I'm going to to post this uh, how do you know if, if it's still safe handout that Nancy has shared and I'll put that on there but um, I I think what we need to really focus on um, what we talked about today is that uh, everybody's different but we need to really pay attention to the stage we're in and how safe is that? I think we sometimes miss the boat there. And I think that's where things can occur that are not very pleasant. And, um, and it causes that, uh, you know, having to place immediately in a sort of a, a crucial kind of take them to the, to the psych for five days. <laughs> I think, I think too many times we're in that, that situation because mm-hmm. we haven't looked at, the stages realistically. So I, mm-hmm. I think it's really important to keep in mind that these things can make a big difference and we need to prepare ourselves for having someone present or having them in a day program or something like that. So um, early planning, I think way back when you first notice symptoms and you're trying to get a diagnosis, I think you ought to start planning for what happens if I can't leave them home alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. 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 And and some some you know because of the FTD because of the personality and the behavioral issues, a lot of people just are very resistant to your supervision, and that makes it right. really really difficult. Almost like you're it's like a thankless job because they resist that. And I I feel yeah. like that that's when we definitely need support groups and we need to bounce ideas off each other um, to try to figure out how to get through this. Yes, and um, hopefully that's what we do with the Talking FTD and also with the chats. Don't forget we have a chat on caregiving.com every Monday and Saturday at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And a lot of times there are people there who have been living in the FTD world for quite some time and can, if you're very new to it, they can give you some assistance and guidance and tell you you're not alone. And, yes, we've seen that happen, too because everybody has a tendency to think this is only happening to me. So um, mm-hmm. connect, make sure you connect, whether it be Facebook yes. or in person or the chat at caregiving, however you connect, connect. And, um, and, and let's, let's take away from this that we need to be cognizant of where our person is and what is happening and I'm going to share also these stages that um, that Nancy shared at the at the conference, so that you can kind of look at those and say, "Oh, maybe we really are over here. Maybe maybe we're getting into this area here." And at least you're aware for help as well. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Nick, I really want to thank you for coming on. I'm, I we have well, many so things much. about, 
And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back again and, and have you help us a little more through this process because I know you help a lot of people in your area uh, sort of get their feet on the ground with FTD. And sometimes people don't have that in their neighborhood. So, you know, you coming on and giving us these suggestions really helps us formulate it in our own mind and know what to look for. So thank you so much for your time, Nancy, and thank you for Well, thank you for inviting me. Sharon, you do such a great service. Well, you know, I I like to have people have as much information because, you know, information is power. And and you really Mm -hmm. can't ask for what you need unless you know the information. So, you know, right. if it's not out there, if you're, if you're with a doctor that's diagnosed and adios, somebody has to tell you what to do. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I think those of us that are in it and have been in it and have gone through the pains of, of making mistakes can help those people who are behind us. So, you know, it's always important to stay connected. So once again, Nancy, thank you. You will certainly be invited back. <laughs> and we'll talk about another issue another time, but thank you for giving us some insight into the stages of FTD. Have a great day, You're everyone. Very welcome. Here uh, next year, next month on September 26th at the same time, and I will make this recording available to you to listen to at any time. So thanks once again, Nancy, and have a wonderful day. You're welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye.